Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. When 40-year-old Esther Castellani died a slow and agonizing death in 1965, the official cause was at first undetermined. The day after Esther's funeral, her husband, Rene, packed up his girlfriend, Lolly, his daughter, Janine, and Lolly's son, Don, in the company car and took off for Disneyland. If not for the doggedness of the doctor who treated Esther, Rene, then a charismatic and handsome radio personality, would have been free to marry Lolly, who was the station's pretty 20-something receptionist. Instead, Rene was charged with capital murder for poisoning his wife with arsenic-laced milkshakes. Murder by Milkshake is the compelling story of the Castellanis and of their daughter, Janine, who was 11 at the time of her mother's murder and who clung to her father's innocence, even committing perjury during his trial. Rigorously researched and based on dozens of interviews with family, friends, and co-workers, Murder by Milkshake documents the sensational case that kept the city spellbound while providing a snapshot of the madmen-esque social and political realities of the 60s. The book that we're featuring this evening is Murder by Milkshake, an astonishing true story of adultery, arsenic, and a charismatic killer. With my special guest, journalist and author and crime historian, Eve Lazarus. Welcome to the program, and thank you very much for agreeing to this interview, Eve Lazarus. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much. First off, uh, tell us a little bit about your work as a crime historian, a journalist, and an author uh, that put you in a position to write about this case initially, originally, before you decided to write this book. So tell us um, a little bit about your background and how you came in a position to be able to write this book. Tell us about the Crime Museum and your blog And tell us all about that background, please. Sure. Um, I first heard about this case at the Vancouver Police Museum, and that would have been back in the 1990s. And it was uh, a true crime display that uh, was mainly at that stage focused on Rini Castellani, the murderer. And I thought, you know, it was kind of a, a really interesting, obviously bizarre case. And I'd written about it in my first book, At Home with History, and The idea behind that book was uh, a house has a history or a genealogy like a person and I was telling stories that happened in the house, filtered through the house and I told the story of the Castellani murder, you know, filtered through that Kerrisdale, Vancouver duplex where most of the poisoning took place and it's been written about several times as a chapter in different people's books and, you know, it's quite a a well-known or actually not as well-known as I thought um, after the book came out but fairly well-known murder case, of course, in Vancouver. And I really never thought about doing a book, but I did write, I, I have a blog called Every Place Has a Story, and several years ago I'd written up a story on my blog, again filtered through the, the duplex where the poisoning took place. And fortunately for me, I made a mistake. I said that uh, Lolly, Rini's mistress, had a six-year-old daughter, and a little while later, I got this note from a woman named Debbie Miller, and she said, you're wrong. Uh, Lolly had a son, and he's my husband, Don, and um, he's been looking for Janine, the Castellani daughter, for almost 50 years. Do you know where she is? And uh, Janine uh, was um, 11 when her father murdered her mother. And I'd always wondered what had happened to Janine, you know, what what is someone's life like after something that awful happens? And um, right. 
didn't again didn't think much more about it and then I'd uh, written a book called Blood Sweat and in 2017 and I had the book launch um, back at the Vancouver Police Museum and uh, Janine came to my book launch and introduced herself so I sort of met Janine and um, I'd said to her oh my god I got you know an email from Debbie Miller Don's husband saying that he's been looking for you and she she got really emotional and, and she said wow I've been looking for him for nearly 50 years as well and I just got so intrigued by this story. I really wanted to tell the story from Janine's point of view and and really as much as possible try to give Esther uh, back a voice um, in this whole story. And Janine, and she has two daughters now, and, and we met, oh, many, many, many times. And uh, it, she had a lot of the family album, you know, photos that are, you can see throughout the book and I'd managed to get the testimony of the, the capital murder trial. And um, so so the story, it's a, it's a bit different. It touches on the history of Vancouver in the 60s. It's um, definitely Janine's story. Uh, and in some ways, the, the murder became the, the least interesting part of, of writing this book for me. Let's talk about the outline of the crime itself in July 1965. We can go back to previous about Esther's health, but take us back to the actual event, and let's talk about just previous to that, the, the living situation. You talk about uh, Renee uh, working at CKNW, a radio, popular radio station. Tell us about their family situation, that Janine with her father and her mother, Esther, Esther, um, she was living at that time in 1965. Sure. Um, well, Rini was um, uh, kind of a minor celebrity. He was a radio personality with CKNW out here in Vancouver, and um, he did all the promotions. And back then, probably even more so than now, um, ratings were just huge, and, and these stations would just do anything you know they kept dreaming up the most outrageous promotions possible and uh, he was well known for, for doing some of these crazy stunts um, he was known as a dizzy dialer it was kind of a, a sh- like a radio version of candid camera where um, you'd call up someone and basically punk them on the air and uh, he right. was known as a dizzy dialer he did an outrageous promotion as the Maharaja of Alibaba where um, the, the opposition station had brought up uh, the guy that the host, whose name I can't remember right now, but he did a show called uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And they brought him up from the States and he handed out, you know, wads of cash to people. And CK and W were desperate to come up with something. And uh, they came up with this Mar- Maharaja of Alibaba where they dressed up Rini in these uh, sheik's robes and said he'd come to buy the province. And, it was so convincing that people came out with signs saying, you know, keep BC British, as it was in those days, 19, in the early 60s. And so he was getting quite a name for himself. Uh, he was, um, before that, he bounced around from job to job. He prepared, uh, so he was in the war as a radio operator in Second World War. He um, looked after washing machines. He was a maintenance guy. He uh, had run a hotel up in Campbell River, northern bc um in the early 60s for a while and they'd moved from house to house it was a pretty unstable sort of life but a fairly happy one according to janine in the early years and uh, so they were bouncing around from sort of house to house he'd finally got hired on after the maharaja um success and so he was working full-time and esther was working as a manager at um, a children's boutique in Kerisdale, just where they lived. And Janine was going to uh, the Little Flower Academy. It was a Catholic boarding school. So life was getting pretty good for them. And then Rini met and fell in love with Lolly, the 20-something, um, I think she was 25 at that point. She was a young widow, beautiful woman, um, had uh, been left some money from her husband's earlier death. And I guess uh, for Rini, it looked like you know something that um, he could down, you know, upgrade a, a younger wife, a younger, beautiful, rich wife. And uh, he looked at uh, how he could get rid of Esther and um, 
found arsenic. She loved milkshakes, apparently, especially ones from White Spot, vanilla milkshakes, and talking to various scientists, apparently um, milk and milkshakes in particular are a fantastic delivery system for arsenic because you can't taste it or see it. And it's a diabolically clever murder weapon. Uh, when it's given in small doses, it mimics natural causes like the flu or... Um, viruses, which is what they thought it was for um, many, many months. Uh, Esther had started getting sick when she'd found a letter uh, in Rini's wallet, uh, signed Love Lolly, and confronted him about this, and he denied having an affair, but pretty soon after that started poisoning her. Uh, do you want me to keep going? Well, the thing is, you you talk about this poisoning. What was you, you write in the book about her doctor Sector and uh, his assessment of what was happening during that time of the poisoning? So, tell us what he thought and what she thought. Was she, did she suspect that there was anything afoul? And what did the doctor suspect? What was his treatment? Actually, I'm very angry at Dr. Sector, who's long dead now, but he was incredibly patronizing. Here she was really suffering, and she would go see him. I think she saw him seven times, and each time he'd kind of pat her on the head and say, well, you're a bit plump, aren't you? Probably, you know, improve your diet, and he'd give her an antacid and sort of commiserate with her, you know, long-suffering husband, and uh, off she'd go, thinking it was her own fault that she was getting sick and uh, as she got sicker and sicker her family was, was so worried for her that um, they got uh, another doctor, a specialist uh, to have a look at her and he immediately put her into Vancouver General Hospital uh, where she was for seven weeks before her death um, she had over 120 different tests and was seen by several specialists and no one could figure out what was wrong with her at this time, you write, and this is part of the incredible story, that this uh, guy that would do anything for a, a promotional man that would would do anything for a radio stunt to promote the radio station, while his wife was in the hospital, he cooked up an especially sensational promotional scheme. Tell us about this promotional. Yes, with the uh, that was quite... And that also did him in, in the end, which was quite interesting. Yeah, uh, one of the promotions was, um, or one of the clients for CKW was a car dealership on uh, with Broadway here in Vancouver, and it was um, Bomac and um, Jimmy Patterson, who's got a zillionaire and owns Huff mm -hmm. Canada, um, was originally um, working at this car dealership. He was a manager of it in 1959, and he had this neon sign built, and it was the biggest freestanding neon sign in North America at that time, and it was all lit up with these huge letters. It's still there. Um, unfortunately, now it's covered by a Toys R Us sign, but it, it's still there, and, um, and huge, huge, but much bigger back then when buildings were very small, and the stunt was that Rini would climb to the top and live in a car until every last car on the dealership was sold. And they built scaffolding up next to the sign. And it was about, I guess, 40 foot high. And uh, he would live in this car and there was a sort of porta potty or something put up there and they'd get his food up there, um, hoist it up and people would wave and honk their horns and they're encouraged to see him. So he's highly visible up on this sign and he was up there for a total of nine days. And while he was up there, Esther was in the hospital and she got better and better. And the day after he came down, she got really, really sick and died not long after that. And after he was caught and it, everything came out, um, they were able to chart the amount of arsenic through her nails and through her hair that she'd ingested in a rough timeline of when she took it. And, you know, surprise, surprise, it, it coincided with the time that he was up on top of the BOMAC sign. Yeah. Now tell us about her death. And then we talked about the doggedness of this doctor, Moscovich. 
Um, tell us how he recognizes that there's something afoul, and what does he do as a result? And tell us about her actual death in 65. Sure. Um, Dr. Moscovich was a specialist that was brought in after Dr. Sector failed her miserably. And he'd had a put into hospital and had done the, as I mentioned, 120 tests and called in a whole bunch of different specialists to, to try and find out what was wrong with her. And um, uh, to no avail, obviously, because she died. But he really liked Esther. And it just drove him nuts that he couldn't figure out what was wrong. And she'd had a hospital autopsy done just after her death. And that still didn't bring out a cause of death. And he just couldn't let it go. And uh, he went back over everything, all the case notes, everything. And then he suddenly realized, ha-ha, arsenic could, could cause these symptoms. And then, as now, you have to be tested specifically for arsenic. It just doesn't come up with any other test. And, and why would you, right? It was, you know, a popular way to off someone mm. in 17 and 1800s, but it's virtually unheard of last century. And it was... Um, uh, so he, anyway, he um, sent off some that from the sorry from the autopsy that had some of her organs still, and uh, he'd sent those off to the city analyst to have them tested. And it came back that she'd had 1,500 times the normal amount of arsenic in her organs that were found in the you know human body. And um, so so they had their sort of cause of death. And. So you asked when she died. She died in July 1965 after spending seven weeks in hospital. Now, right away, of course, investigations might be different today, and certainly they were different then. But you write this incredible part of the story where he packs up his girlfriend, Lolly, uh, his daughter, Janine, and her son, Don, and in the company car. And you write in the book, too, that he had prepared the radio station saying that he was going to use the company car for a family outing, uh, certainly not what he ended up doing. So and in this company car, he took off for Disneyland one day after the funeral. Tell us more yeah, about this, this suspicion that is aroused by this and what do the police do. You talk about a particularly, uh, again, dogged detective that uh, suspects him early on. Tell us what happens. Yeah, it was the day after the funeral, as you mentioned, um, he'd got the company car and he had told, you know, the station and he told the family that he was taking Janine away. He was taking her to Disneyland and to, to get away and, and make a fresh start of it. And they were quite encouraging. They loaned him a car for that. And uh, the family gave him cash to, um, you know, take her away on a holiday but, of course, he didn't tell anyone that he was also taking his mistress and, and her six-year-old son. And the, the other really bizarre thing that he did was no one, before this, no one suspected him. He was a loving husband. He played the role really well. And um, the, the other, had he got her cremated, by the way, everything would have gone away. Mm -hmm. He would have yes. got away with murder. But he didn't have a cremation for whatever reason. I think he just got really arrogant that he'd got away with the poisoning for so long and fooled all the specialists. And I, I, I imagine that he just felt invincible by this point and so could just do anything. And one of the other dumb things he did a couple of weeks before Esther died was he and Lolly went and took out a mortgage for a house in their new married names. Oh. Right. And then a couple when the police found out about Disneyland and said, hello, he's you know, got a mistress, and um, then found out about the mortgage. Then they really centred their investigation on him. And by this time, they were all living together, he and Lolly and the two kids, in a house just outside Vancouver proper. And so that was all going along. Right. You talk about uh, that he eventually agrees to a search of the home and what do police find under the sink <laughs> yeah he uh, the, the police by this time when they found out about all this were really looking at him quite closely and uh, turned up one day and asked him if they could look 
inside his house. And another stupid thing he did was say, come on in. And um, they got really excited when they looked under the kitchen sink and found a can of orthotriox. Uh, orthotriox is about 90% arsenic and it was a, a popular weed killer and a rat killer back then. Uh, arsenic was used for both. And um, they looked around the garden and, and saw that um, Rennie wasn't a gardener and uh, Janine was confirmed that her mother didn't uh, garden either. So they got the can of orthotriox and had it analysed and it was missing about the same amount that would have been needed to kill Esther. Now, again, all of this is circumstantial evidence. They had no actual proof, but the circumstantial evidence was building rapidly. Now, from there, what is their break? What is their impetus to be able to arrest René for the murder of his wife? Was it take? Well, they were, as mentioned, they were living together as a family then and, and did so for the next several months. And then Rini and Lolly took out a marriage license and the police swooped because they knew that uh, if they were married, that they couldn't force Lolly to testify against her husband. Right. So he was arrested straight away. Um, they put off arresting him, I'm told, because they were hoping that he would do something really dumb and lead them to real evidence that they could charge him with. But he never did that. What type of information did police believe that Lolly might have and what did Lolly tell them, if anything, about Renee and his plans? What did they uh, get from her? Not much. Um, she never did testify at the court trials, and I'm not sure why that was, uh, but she did testify at the inquest and, and pretty well lied. <laughs> um, I, she was the, the problem for me. I believe she's still alive but I couldn't find her and I really don't know whether she was another victim of his or whether she was complicit in the murder um, she I, I get the sense that he probably he told everyone he was getting the divorce except for his wife um, and I suspect he originally told her the same thing but after he was arrested I mean she must have known that he was responsible, you know, when they found out that Esther was murdered through arsenic. And she still stuck by him. And she then, uh, Janine, after he went to jail, Janine stayed with her and Don for the next five years. Now, you talk about that stay with, with her, and you write in the book, because, of course, you had this incredible access with the meeting with Janine. How did Lolly treat her, and what was the home life like with Dawn and herself, but also what was the situation with, with Renee in prison and, uh, and Janine's relationship with Esther's parents, her grandparents, what did they say to her about them? And in real terms, what was the relationship with her grandparents after this? Yeah, that was um, really awful, actually. She uh, had a close relationship with her grandparents, Esther's um, mum and dad, before all this and, and while her mother was alive. And after René was convicted of capital murder, which at that point came with a death penalty, he still had custody of Janine. And he'd uh, put over his custody to Janine to Lolly. So Lolly actually had custody of Janine. And... Uh, so that was really bizarre, and he wouldn't let her see her grandparents. And he told Janine that they were going to kidnap her, that they were horrible people, that if she went anywhere near them, that she'd never see him again. And, and she, he had her basically manipulated and, and brainwashed into being really frightened of them. And so she wasn't allowed to see them and didn't for, for the next five years. And, and Lolly and, and Don became her only family. Uh, Don, she used to babysit a lot, and, and they were really close. And uh, it, I was really interested about how Lolly treated her. I had a certain amount of sympathy for this woman. She was only 26. Uh, she had a six-year-old son. She was a widow. She'd been fired from CKW for having an affair with a right. senior manager while he kept his job, which I just find outrageous. Yeah. Um, 
so, and then she was financially responsible for this, you know, 13-year-old by that point, uh, which mm-hmm. kind of been great. But Janine never remembers her being mean to her. She said Lolly was very strict, but she was never mean. She threw a party at one point, and um, yet Don, her son, uh, is estranged from his mother, so she's evil and believes she, you know, had something to do with it. So I, I have really mixed feelings about Lolly. And um, Janine stayed there for almost five years, and until Lolly dumped her father and found another man and Janine was kind of taken and dropped off at Rennie's sister's um, had a name changed and, and told never to talk about it again before that uh, before she was told never to talk about it again what information did she have what was she told in that ensuing five years or even in the ensuing two years before she went to trial and testified what did she know about the story itself what was she told was she, was she encouraged to get information what did she actually know she completely believed her father was innocent and um, she didn't see him for two years after he was arrested and put in jail and he went through one trial and was convicted and given the death penalty. Um, and they had no defence. They put on no defence. He didn't take the stand and didn't have any defence witnesses. And the second trial, he did take the stand and so was, did Janine. And Janine was only 13 at that time. And she was basically told what to say. Um, she, was, she committed perjury. Uh, when I got the transcripts, I was reading them back to her when I was doing the book and I said, was this true? Was this part true? And she'd say, no, I was told to say that. You know, things like, you know, were Lolly and Rini sleeping together when we went to Disneyland? And they were, and she was told to say, no, they weren't. And, you know, awful, awful stuff to do to a child. And I I think she, you know, well, I know that she's really bitter about that now. Um, but she believed her father was innocent and, you know, she had no one else. She'd been cut off from the rest of the family, um, living with Lolly and Don, uh, hoping that her father would, you know, get out of jail. And this was also the first time that she'd seen him in two years. So it's just really awful. She was the only, you write that incredibly, she was the only defense witness at the trial for her father and 13 years of age. And you said that when you got the trial transcripts then, and she hadn't seen it, you asked her questions and like that, she told you that, well, the police told her to say that, no, my, my dad no, was not, not sleeping with Lolly when we went to no, Disney. No, her lawyer. No, not her the lawyer, police, pardon me. her lawyers. Yep. Pardon me, her lawyers, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Now this, what else was she coerced to say on that stand and from your experience dealing with her how traumatic was that experience for her among all the other traumatic experiences well I think I I just mentioned that it was incredibly traumatic she's still very bitter about that right now with this uh, living arrangement you you say that uh, five years later she is living with her dad's sister um, and she is does not see and does have no contact with Don anymore or Lolly after that period of time am I correct right. right what I found the most one of the most fascinating parts of this book is the when you talk about the society at that time and the death penalty when was he tell us how close it was that he would have been hung for his crimes and then what happens afterwards which is again diametrically opposed to the death penalty yeah it's fascinating actually that was one of my most interesting parts of the book as well Um, when he was sentenced the second time to hang um, the death penalty was committed two weeks before he was actually scheduled to hang so he was incredibly lucky and he got even luckier you know his sentence was Um, obviously given life in prison and he was sent to Masqui which was a brand new prison out in uh, out past Abbotsford here in BC and um, it was mainly for drug addicts and drug pushers and he was one of the few that wasn't you know incarcerated because of drugs and he was given uh, just a a huge amount of latitude he was um, quickly 
they had this grading system where you went through different grades and when you got to grade four, you were given certain um, liberties, like you could leave cell door unlocked, you could go to the library yourself, and you could get out into the community. And so within a couple of years, this guy's gone from getting the death penalty to life in prison in this very, you know, Ocala prison, which is a very tough jail, to this pretty lax, it was medium security, but you know, compared to the others, it was, you know, a fairly nice place where they could actually see their family and Janine could visit him and, you know, hug him and, and stuff like that. There wasn't glass in between them. And, and uh, then he could actually go out to the community. So within a couple of years, he'd got a volunteer job full-time uh, with community services in Abbotsford, which meant he'd leave for work every day and then come back to jail that night. And he had full access to the community. I, I talked to people that knew him in those days and he would be around. He was a very smart man and very good at promotions and he did a lot of um, things for, for people and uh, was incredibly popular and, and well-liked. And within a, uh, probably five to seven years, he was getting weekend passes and Janine remembers him bringing a different woman around on weekends or, you know, being asked to come and visit him at a different woman's place. And it was almost like these women were checking him out of jail for the weekend. Um, within 10 years, he was working for an Abbotsford radio station and wow. he was fully paroled, remarried, moved to Nanaimo where he worked for another radio startup station. And... Um, and lived there for the rest of his life, which um, fortunately wasn't very long. Right. Let's use this as an opportunity, Eve, just to stop for a second to talk about our sponsor, which is Best Fiends. America has fallen in love with Best Fiends, the five-star rated mobile puzzle game. Discover the world of Best Fiends and its cute characters in this fiendishly fun, free-to-download mobile puzzle game. Right away, I noticed the vivid colors and the impressive visual style of Best Fiends when I started playing this game. It's a really cool story, but I've stayed with this because it's the challenge and the puzzle solving that's kept me interested. There's 1,400 levels, and I am making progress all the time, but you don't need to be a gamer to enjoy playing this. I'm, I'm a novice, and I'm having a lot of fun. I'm really, really hooked on this game. Thousands of hours of gameplay, easy to learn, difficult to master. The perfect casual game to play alone or with family and friends. Five-star rated on the Apple App Store and Google Play. Over 90 million downloads globally. Play offline anywhere. Perfect when you want to squeeze in another level on the go or to play on a plane or in the subway. Don't miss out on the must-play game of the year. Solve thousands of puzzles fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters five-star rated mobile game on the apple app store and google play download free on the apple app store or google play that's friends without the r best fiends now when we last spoke we were talking about this incredible lax and lenient sentence when he would have been a man hung for his crimes he is now working with this again what in Canada, we call a mandatory life sentence. He is working in the community on this temporary absence programs. Um, two years into his sentence, and as you write, 10 years, he is fully paroled. You write about in the book, though, there is a car accident that Janine is involved in, and then a settlement, and then uh, a visit with her fiancé in prison. Tell us about this whole event that happens that she's come into some money and what the father has plans for that money and his relationship with her new fiancé, later her husband. Right. Um, at the second trial, on the night that he was convicted for, for capital murder and given the death sentence, um, Janine, of course, is, is living with Lolly, and she'd gone out that night and she was crossing the road with a couple of friends and it was a rainy, dark night, and she was hit by a police car and thrown into the air and um, almost killed. Uh, she had her right eyelid 
ripped off and she had you know she was in hospital for a month and had to learn to to walk again um it was just a it was a tragic accident it was a police car chasing someone and um he wasn't particularly speeding or anything and uh, just really awful all the way around but she did get a settlement from the city and uh, was eligible when she turned 21. Well, Remy, for some reason, thought that he deserved part of this settlement and was um, just starting to harass her for the money. And I can't remember exactly how much it was. I think about 20000 or, or something. Like, it wasn't a huge fortune by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, but she'd um, at this time met her fiancé, Dale, and Dale had been, driven her out a few times to visit her father because she was still going regularly. She still believed he was innocent. And um, Rini was starting to have to look for the money and um, Dale was starting to say, no, no, you're not going to, to give him any money. It's, he doesn't deserve any money. And he, Rini was um, starting to, to really worry them both. He was starting to sent her a threatening letter at one point he'd asked her to sort of put his put her arms around his waist when she was visiting and pull on this string and she, she got this note out and when she got home this note was all about uh, how she was you know just turned into a pub crawler and um, it's sort of no good and he was the fiance was awful and all of this stuff and um, he would get out for on a weekend pass and, and come by their house and she was so uh, really afraid that um, he would you know, put a bomb or something in the car. It was really bizarre. And uh, so, and she started to really, she went back and started to read all the articles about the trial and, and talk to people, talk to a family. And then she realized, oh my God, he, he really did murder my mother. And she cut off all contact. She actually never saw him again. Right. Now from this, from this incredible research that you've done, you've read the trial transcripts, tell, it, tell us how it seems unusual that you would have access to the police reports in what is considered still an unsolved crime. Please explain that. Oh, it's definitely not an unsolved crime. It's definitely a solved crime. I wouldn't have been able to get unsolved. Um, so because it was a capital murder, case and uh, right. went with the death penalty. All the transcripts are in Ottawa, uh, complete with the police investigation. Uh, so that um, that was really useful and a woman named uh, Colleen Hardwick had uh, was going to do a movie, never eventuated, but had got all of this uh, from Ottawa 25 years or so ago and uh, very generously loaned them all to me. So that was great. So I had access to all the transcripts and I ordered up the inquest from Victoria from BC Archives here. And the inquest always has an incredible amount of information and uh, hearsay information is allowed and and stuff that's just not allowed at the trial. Uh, So that was brilliant and and that's like two inches thick. So I was able to get a lot of the dialogue from the friends at New Esther and um, Rini's own words and things from that, which I, I think sort of made it a bit more lively and uh, interesting. What was what was the reason for the inquest? Uh, well, they usually always, back then anyway they would always have an inquest if it, it was suspicious. It was um, at that point it was you know just, just to discover her cause of death and whether someone was responsible for it. Not who was responsible, but, you know, whether it was murder or suicide or natural causes. And it's a coroner's inquest that um, was held actually in the old um, police, where, where the police museum is today, was the old right. coroner's court. And that's also where she was, her body was brought when it was exhumed. You write about the research used that you spoke to many people, co-workers, people that worked with uh, René before he was arrested, and then people that worked with him, like a radio station at, in Abbotsford afterwards. Uh, tell us what they all said about his character and what they all said, weirdly enough, about his guilt. <laughs> uh, everyone I talked to really liked him. 
Everyone told me how smart he was, how clever, how much fun he was to work for. And in every case, I would say to them, well, do you think he did it? And every time, everyone said, oh, yeah. Everyone thought this guy did it, but they liked him anyway. I just found that fascinating. And um, there were a couple of things that I I just couldn't answer, a couple of disconnects and things like that uh, about why he did what he did and what he was like. And I had uh, a woman named Heather uh, Burke, and she's a forensic psychologist, and she was kind enough to go over the first draft and, and really look at him. And she said, wow, you know, he ticks off every box on the psychopath checklist. He's charismatic, um, he's smart, he was manipulative, um, just everything that um, on that list. And so I, I just found that really interesting. And as she said, you know, psychopaths are, are just quite fine until you get in their way. And of course, Esther got in his way and, uh, and later Janine did as well. You talk about that... Um he addressed the jury and made a a speech to them that uh, w- would be memorable. What did he say to the jury at the, after the end of the second uh, trial? Right. Um, the, the judge had gone through the spiel about, you know, may God have mercy on your soul, and he turned around and looked at the jury and, and really said that back to them. I can't remember the exact words offhand. Do you have it there? He said to just have mercy, uh, that God would have mercy on their souls, the jurors. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah. so it was, he was pretty ballsy. Yes. You talk about the effort that he does and seems to be successful in rebuilding his life and reputation. I find this especially interesting that he went from hanging to out in the community and being accepted in this same community, even though this crime was very high profile. And you say maybe not as many people knew about it, but at the time that this was well known, I, I find this odd that he was able to rehabilitate his reputation and his career. Tell us what you found. Yeah. I talked to the, the guy, Bob Singleton was the manager of the Abbotsford radio station that hired him. He was also on the, the board for Masqui Prison. So he knew him from Masqui and he knew his you know, reputation. And he hired him anyway, um, hired him while he was still in jail. Um, after community services, he went to the radio station where he went. Uh, he was known as Remy the Roadrunner, and he did all the traffic reports for the station. Mm-hmm. He was also a bit of a maintenance guy as well. He was good at fixing things. But um, Bob had said uh, he really liked him. He had no qualms. He did a great job, apparently. Uh, but he said he did keep under the radar. Like, he didn't use his last name. He was in Abbotsford, which is, you know, a fair way out of Vancouver. Uh, I remember George Garrett, who was uh, a reporter with CKNW for over 40 years and um, knew Rini and Wally, actually, and uh, he's still very much around. And George told me that, he was. It was a sister station, apparently, uh, this Abbotsford radio station to CKNW. I mean, he was out there one day, and I guess it was around the early 1970s. He said, I couldn't believe it when Renee came around the corner and said, hi, George, how are you? He said, you know, he nearly, he nearly fainted because he had no idea he was out of jail. So I suspect that most people didn't know. Mm-hmm. You write about Janine finding out after the altercation with her father and the threats to her fiancé and her being criticized by him, and she starts doing reading for the first time. You say family and friends, well, family, but friends had especially kept a lot of this information, and one way or another, she didn't know much, and she started to look at his guilt. What was, uh, in talking to her and in this book, what was the process like for her to realize that the father had betrayed her, had deceived her, and that she had to move on, how did she do that? How was she able to cope with that reality? Well, I think what she would say is that she didn't cope very well until this book. Um, It was hugely important for her to have this story out. Um, I remember when I'd finished the first 
draft of the book and sent it to her and I was really worried, you know, because she didn't hold anything back for the book. Everything's in there. And some of it's pretty awful stuff, you know, including the time that she was raped. Um, Mm -hmm. But she's really, you know, she was told to forget about it and not talk about it, and she didn't. And I think that's been festering for almost 50 years. And um, when the book, going through this process with me with the book has been cathartic for her, and I think it's really helped her with the grieving process and to be able to acknowledge what's been done to her and and go through it. And her two daughters have been incredibly supportive as well, as have a, a bunch of friends. And when we had the book launch, we must have had 250 people at the launch and uh, many of them were there to support Janine and Janine got up on stage with me and she never talked publicly before about it and this was the first time and she was amazing we just sat and sort of like two women talking on stage and just talking about what it meant to her and what it had done to her it's pretty powerful you write about too that and it was uh, anticlimactic in the end but it was very interesting that Janine picked a, uh, uh, was hesitant to tell her children about her past, but then what prompted her was again the police museum exhibit. Tell us what she did with the police exhibit in terms of uh, sheltering her children, and then what she eventually that event where she eventually told her children about her past. Right. Um, when her oldest daughter Lindsay was twelve. Uh, the school were going to a visit to the police museum and um, Janine had never been there and had no idea that the true crime exhibit was there. And um, a friend had sort of phoned her and said and told her about this and asked if she was aware of it. And Janine thought, oh, God, it's tomorrow. I really need to, to tell the kids this. I don't want them finding out that way because they knew, you know, that her parents' names and they'd seen photos of Esther and she was, you know, of course, knew that they would recognise it straight away. So she called the curator of the museum and asked if he'd cover it, and uh, which he did reluctantly, apparently, uh, not sure why. And anyway, so they went to the museum and uh, when they came home, she'd taken the kids aside and, and just told them the story. And, and you know, they they were incredibly supportive, even as really young children, and said, "Well, why would you be worried about this, Mum? It had nothing to do with you." And uh, they, they've remained incredibly supportive. I think that's been huge for her. Mm-hmm. You write about the uh, trial as well. That the prosecution didn't just roll over; they tried to introduce things as ridiculous as that. Uh, uh, Esther's sister might have had an affair with Renee at some point. Um, they did put on a very vigorous defense, didn't they? Uh, the prosecution. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the defense wasn't particularly rigorous, but uh, yeah, the prosecution uh, certainly were coming out with all guns blazing uh, because they knew it was circumstantial at best. And uh, it, it's quite possible, actually. I've got um, tapes of an interview or several interviews that were done with Esther's sister, Gloria, uh, by a lady called Susan McNichols. She was going to write a book about 15 years ago and ill health prevented her. And she incredibly generously gave me these tapes, uh, which had Esther's uh, Esther's sister's voice on them. And um, Gloria does say that she was called into the prosecution's office, actually, and asked if she'd had an affair with Rene. So the prosecution thought that that may have come up. And so the defence, I guess, had um, been trying to to use that as an example, and and she denied that. Um, They also tried... Esther's sister, Gloria, had a lot of problems. Um, She had been physically abused by family. Esther had as well. She'd been physically and sexually abused by her stepfather. Um, So they had a lot of... awful things happened to them in, in their young life and uh, Gloria was going through a divorce and uh, was pretty messed up and tried to kill herself a few times and I guess the defence thought that she'd make a great patsy and they tried to insinuate that she had tried to poison her sister um, I guess because she was in love with Rini and uh, she'd been also out of the country 
for a long time while the poisoning was taken in you know, place, so that just sort of fell apart completely. And But Janine was coaxed to say that um, she'd seen her aunt come round and make jello for mother in the kitchen and shut the doors and, and stuff like that. So yeah, it was pretty insidious what they did. You write that it didn't take long for the jury to deliberate and come back with the guilty conviction, did it? No, not one at all. And there was no recommendation for mercy. Apparently, one of the jurors told a, a reporter that they'd looked at it really closely because, you know, no one wanted to give someone the death penalty, but they couldn't find anything that would make them go easy on him. How big a case was this in the media? You write oh God, it was huge. It was front page every day. It was insane. Like people would. Um, just every, you know, everyone was talking about it around the the water coolers, and it was just incredible gossip. I mean, it was so scandalous. It had so many elements in it. You know, the actual method of cause of death, and Rini, who was so well known, and you know, the beautiful mistress, and all of that. Yeah, it was really titillating for Vancouver, and it was also. One of the fascinating things for me about writing a book was the time that it took place. It was the 60s. So you've got Vancouver in 1965, still living in 1950 sensibilities, right, where, you know, drinking right. didn't happen and women wore frocks and everyone went to church and it was all, you know, very nice and all of that. But you're also seen by the trial, 66, 67, when the two trials took place, this huge change where hippies are coming up and draft dodgers from the states and there's being and there's free love and there's this whole you know just complete seismic shift in sensibility so it was interesting sort of following that and a lot of people think that because it was 1965 and, and still not quite you know still in this kind of 50s sort of thing that he was convicted because of his affair rather than you know on any evidence and even now when I, I talk to lawyers today saying well what do you think would happen if this happened now it's still a toss-up whether he'd be convicted or not really yeah, interesting what uh, what was the reaction when he was I mean obviously it was known when he was released after a couple of years was there any um, blowback from that from the media was there any criticism of that decision nothing I didn't find a thing and that might be because they just didn't know well yeah that could be true now with this you you, you write about and I know that uh, Janine has made her first public appearance at one of your book signings um, you interview her what about the relationship that was severed years ago for 40 or 50 years, uh, Dawn Miller and herself, Janine. What was that reconciliation like, and what does it look like today? That was one of the, the greatest things about writing the book for me, that they got back together. And, um, it's you know, it's just been really incredible. Um, they've become really close. Their families are really close. They think of each other as, you know, long-lost brother and sister. Uh, Janine's daughter just got married a couple of weekends ago, and Don and Debbie were there at the wedding. And they're at the book launch, and they've been incredibly supportive as well. So, yeah, that, that was one of the really nice things to, to come out. And I think when you, you know, I've been to lunch with them and stuff like that, and you, when you hear them talk and, about the horrors that they went through, and Don's life wasn't particularly nice either, um, that you, you sort of look at them and think, oh, my God, they turned out to be such nice, warm, wonderful people uh, with great jobs and great families. And, you know, so, so that was a nice thing to at least find that out, that their lives had turned out okay despite all this. Mm -hmm. When did uh, Rene Castellani uh, pass away and what were the circumstances? He, um, he I guess, karma. Karma got him in the end. He got pancreatic cancer. Um, not long after he moved, he remarried and moved to Abbotsford, and uh, died of cancer in 1982. He was 56 years old. Yeah, it's pretty young. 
Mm. What has this book, um, you, t- you talk about that public appearance uh, with Janine. What was that like? You, you talk about, uh, we, you know, it's overused word, catharsis, cathartic event. But what has this done for her in terms of people knowing this story? You say that one of the intentions was to give her mother a voice. What does she think of this book? Uh, you did put the transcripts to her and then waited for her response. You say that was a nervous bit of time. <laughs> yeah. well, what has this book done for her, and, and uh, what has it done for her? It's allowed her to grieve her mother finally. And that's obviously very important. Oh, my God, it's been huge. I think it's been life-changing. And was there, was it important to to also, I mean, you talk about giving the mother a voice, but you do write in a book, and we didn't talk so much about it, but you, you, you talk about her being brave and courageous and also a unique woman being a businesswoman and successful at that time in the 60s. So she was mm-hmm. a remarkable woman, this Esther, and this is part of, what this book does is to talk about Esther and who she was at that time and not, again, so much as it been, the focus on this charismatic killer husband. Right. And, you know, that was one of the, the struggles that I had writing the book because I had Janine's perspective of her mother, but she was 11 years old when she died. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's from a, a small child. Um, most of the people, uh, I could Esther, sister, Gloria is still alive, but not in good shape, and I couldn't talk to her. Uh, and she's still really upset about the whole thing, so it's not an easy subject for her. I couldn't find any of her colleagues or, or friends that were still alive that, that could sort of help round her out as an adult. So that was hard, and I had to rely a lot on the transcripts and police reports of these people that were giving evidence about her and um, talking about what she told them and and things like that to to try to give her a voice there. Now, with this, uh, you met Janine at uh, the Blood, Sweat and Fear book signing that you were talking about this book, and you met her at the police museum. Um, I wanted to ask you about all of the things that you're doing now. I read that you were planning a series of podcasts. Maybe you can explain it better than I about what your plans are for Murder by Milkshake with a podcast series that you've done previously with other work that you've done. Tell us a little bit about that, and tell us about that. Sure. Um, I've started a a podcast a couple of months ago based on my book, Blood, Sweat, and Fear, and uh, the book was about Inspector Vance. He was the first forensic scientist, um, really one of the earliest in North America, and he worked for the Vancouver Police Department out of the building, which is now the Vancouver Police Museum. And a lot of his lab is still intact. It's amazing. Uh, he retired in 1949, so you know it's a pretty incredible feat. And um, as part of that, when I was doing the research, I found a, a lot of his grandchildren. He died in '65, and uh, uncovered these boxes that he'd um, packed up when he retired, and was full of crimes and information and even his diary so it became a, a fascinating book to, to write and each chapter follows a different case uh, mainly murders that Vance worked on so it became a sort of a natural for a podcast and uh, I've published um, seven episodes of that Blood, Sweat and Fear now and that's been a, a lot of fun but uh, as you know <laughs> there's a huge learning mm-hmm. curve to, when you haven't done this before and I'm hosting, I'm producing, I had to learn all the, the editing software and all of that. So I'm just starting now to introduce interviews with lawyers and um, police officials and, and things like that. And I'm just having so much fun with it. It's been amazing. And yeah, I'd like to, um, a, another book I wrote was Cold Case Vancouver, all about unsolved murders in Vancouver. So that'll be my next one. And I'd like to work up to Murder by Milkshake, I think it would make, you know, with Janine, to, to do that with her, would make an incredible mm-hmm. podcast as well. Um, the book has been optioned for um, uh, movie or TV rights and uh, documentaries. Congratulations. So I, thank you so much, yeah. And, uh, so I also don't want to do anything, though, to um, 
negatively affect that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I want to thank you for coming on and talking about your book, Murder by Milkshake, an astonishing true story of adultery, arsenic, and a charismatic killer. For those that might want to take a look at your other work, uh, your your blog, your this podcast that we talked about, do you have a website, Facebook page? Tell us about that, please. Yes, um, all through my name, evelazarus.com. That's E-V-E-L-A-Z-A-R-U-S. Uh, my blog, Every Place Has a Story, which is, uh, I kind of call it Heritage, uh, History and Murder. And uh, my podcast is all through that. Um, the podcast is on Podbean, but can be accessed through that and through um, Apple and all the usual podcatchers. Yes, absolutely. And all my well, books thank are you very... there as well. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, thank you. That's great. Thank you very much for coming on and talking about Murder by Milkshake. It has been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Eve Lazarus. You have a great evening. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good night. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.